You're listening to From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow, Episode 8, The Jews of the Persian Empire. In the last several episodes of this podcast, I have focused on the history of one remarkable group of Jews who, in the 6th and 5th centuries BCE, under Persian patronage, shaped the Torah and attempted to install it as law in Jerusalem. Although their success at the time was limited, they nevertheless left a legacy that would decidedly shape Judaism throughout antiquity and even into the modern period. But these proto-sectarian Jews, led by characters such as Ezra and Nehemiah, were not representative. The majority of Jews in Jerusalem itself appear to have been wary of them, and we can presume that the many other Jews living outside of the environs of Jerusalem throughout the Persian Empire would have had little or no knowledge of them, and perhaps even of their Torah. In this episode, I will discuss two such Jewish communities outside of Jerusalem. The first is the Jewish community represented in the biblical book of Esther. While the book of Esther is almost certainly not historically accurate, it nevertheless reveals the assumptions and expectations of its author, and maybe its readers. The second community that I will discuss is known only from a catch of papyri preserved in Elephantine, which is located in the south of modern-day Egypt. These two Jewish communities, I suggest, lived far from the concerns of their Jerusalem compatriots. First, the Book of Esther. The book purports to tell the story of a threat to the Jews in the Persian Empire and their salvation through the actions of Esther and Mordechai. The story is fanciful, and no external document collaborates it. Whatever the veracity of the account, because the events reported in it are placed in the Persian period and report a threat to Jews living as minorities under Persian rule, the book has most often been read by scholars as having been written during the Persian period. Personally, I have my doubts. The use of Hebrew rather than Aramaic, along with the strong parallels between the book and some Greek novels, might better suggest a later dating. I wonder if this book tells us anything at all about Jewish life in the Persian period, or is merely some author imagining what Jewish life in the Persian capital might have looked like. Let me for the moment, though, put aside that doubt. Let's assume that this book really does reflect something about a Jewish community living at the center of the Persian Empire, called Shushan in the Book of Esther, in the 5th century BCE. What might we learn from the book about the religious life of this community? First, the author of the story is untroubled by what we would call today intermarriage. Neither Mordechai nor Esther herself seems to be in the least bit disconcerted with her sleeping with the king. Now, it might be argued that the exceptional nature of the story indicates little about the general attitude of its author toward intermarriage. Yet even in antiquity, Jewish readers of this book were troubled by this detail. When the book of Esther was translated into Greek, probably around the 2nd or 1st centuries BCE, the translator added a passage in which Esther acknowledges and justifies her liaison with the king. That these later Jews would pick up on and be discomforted by this plot element highlights the fact that the original author of the story was not. This might be all the more remarkable in light of both Ezra's and Nehemiah's concern with the purity of Israel and their stark 
and total condemnation of intermarriage. At the same time that they were attempting to break up and discourage such marriages in Jerusalem, the Jews in Shushan, their hometown presumably, seemed untroubled by it. Second, there is no evidence of a Torah in the book of Esther. We shouldn't make too much of this. It may simply be that it was just not relevant to the plot. But it is nevertheless striking that not once does anybody in the story cite or mention the existence of a Torah or law of the Jews. The closest mention that we get is in Haman's accusation to King Ahasuerus against the Jews at chapter 3, verse 8, that their laws, datehem in Hebrew, are different from those of other groups and from those of the king. This could well be a reference to some distinctive ethnic customs. We see no evidence through the book, though, of any distinctive customs. There is no Sabbath or holidays, no mention of the God of Israel, and even Mordechai's refusal to bow to Haman is not justified in the book, in contrast to the readings of some later interpreters, by reference to religious motivations. This, too, might be contrasted with Ezra's promotion of the Torah. Third, there seems to be no real organization of the Jewish community or its religious life. Mordechai, at Esther's request, arranges for a three-day fast, but this is ad hoc. It is Mordechai who sent the festal letter at the end of the book to the scattered Jewish communities that establishes the holiday of Purim as a day of feasting and merrymaking. He does so not as the leader of the Jews, a role that he does not appear to have at the beginning of the book, but as an officer of the royal court. Mordechai's letter, in fact, was not quite enough. Queen Esther dispatched her own letter only to confirm Mordechai's, again meant to establish its royal backing. And then, just in case the Jewish recipients were really dense, King Ahasuerus himself writes a letter to support the previous two. My point here is not that this really happened, but that the Persian Jewish author of this book, if in fact it was really written during the Persian period, imagined it in this way, rather than having Purim authorized by more established leaders of the Jewish community, if such existed. It would be entirely likely that despite Ezra's and Nehemiah's claims to leadership, there really were few leaders of local Jewish communities within the Persian Empire, and none of the Jews as a communal whole. The picture of Jewish life in the Persian Empire, as drawn in the Book of Esther, thus sharply diverges from that drawn in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets who preceded them. But, as I said before, the Book of Esther is a fanciful retelling of an uncertain date and provenance. Historically, it might not be evidence of much at all. Luckily and unexpectedly, though, we have evidence of a different Jewish community living in the Persian Empire. This community of Jews was settled on the periphery of the Persian Empire in the dusty garrison of Elephantine, a small island in the Nile River toward the southern border of Egypt. These Jews worked for the Persians as mercenaries. Although Jews had been in Egypt for some time, you might remember the large-scale Jewish flight to Egypt around 586 BCE, just ahead of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, 
We do not know hence or how these particular Jews got to Egypt. Repeating. Although Jews had been in Egypt for some time, you might remember the large-scale Israelite flight to Egypt around 586 BCE, just ahead of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. We do not know whence or how these particular Jews got to Elephantine. What we do know is that there was a Jewish military unit reporting to Persian authorities there by the middle of the 5th century BCE. How do we know this? From a series of coincidental archaeological finds made in Elephantine in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. During these excavations, and alongside it on the antiquities gray market, archaeologists discovered catches of papyri documents written in Aramaic that concerned this community of Jews, along with related ostraca, that is, inscribed pottery shards. These catches, for the most part, consisted of three archives, each of which contains about a dozen documents. Two of the archives are legal records of two families and consist primarily of marriage contracts and sale records. One appears to be an archive of official communal correspondence. It is, by the way, interesting, no, let me strike that, and to use a more expressive colloquial expression, cool, or maybe better, way cool, to note that some of these papyri are currently housed in the Brooklyn Museum. In the remainder of this episode, I will focus mainly on two of the documents from the communal archive, both written in the late 5th century BCE. Before I do, though, I want to say something about the names to which these documents and ostraca attest. As by now you might expect, I want to talk again about theophoric names, those names that contain the name of the deity, thereby hoping to gain that deity's favor. The vast majority of the names attested in these documents were theophoric. Moreover, unlike contemporary theophoric Jewish names in Judah and Babylonia, the Elephantine names never use El as God's name. They use only forms of the Yah name. Names might end with such a designation, such as Benaiah, meaning Yah built, or they might begin with a form, such as Yehotal, Yah is my due. The Jews of Elephantine were devoted to their ancestral god, Yah. The th- Two communal papyri I mentioned a minute ago also give us insight into how these Jews understood and acted upon this devotion. One of these papyri is a letter written to the Jewish community in Elephantine. It is from your brother Hananya and is addressed to Jedaniah and his colleagues, the Jewish garrison. It was sent in 419 BCE. Known as the Passover letter, the letter is a relatively straightforward summary of the laws of Passover. Hananiah tells them to keep the festival of the unleavened bread from the 15th of Nisan for seven days to the 21st. They should not eat any unleavened items, including apparently beer, from sunset on the 14th day of Nisan until sunset on the 21st. They should not work on the first and the last day of the festival. These strictures all contain parallels in the Torah. Why, then, was this letter sent? If the Judean garrison at Elephantine already had the Torah 
and observed these strictures, why would this Hanania, whoever he was and wherever he was from, send such a letter? The most noted scholar of this elephantine Jewish community, Bitzalel Porton, asserts that it was more a reminder or reaffirmation than anything else, that certainly the community knew of and observed Passover prior to the letter. I am not so sure that we can go that far. I wonder if the community might have observed a Passover at that time, but perhaps not in the same way that Hananya did. What they might have been doing on Passover I'll get to shortly, but what they might not not have been doing could have been avoiding leavened items. That is, this community might have known about Passover, but not about the festival of the unleavened bread. This would have been part of the Torah, which they still, at the end of the 5th century, may not have had. Hananya, though, did have some version of the Torah, and the authority to impose it. Toward the end of the letter, he cites the authority of the king as the reason why Jedaniah should heed him. Hananya, though, was also not quite in the mold of Ezra and Nehemiah. In his opening salutation, he wishes his Jewish recipients the welfare of the gods. That's right, plural, gods. On this matter, Hananya may indeed have been on the same page as his brothers in Elephantine. As I discussed in an earlier episode, the Torah itself contains different attitudes toward monotheism from a strict and radical monotheism that comes to full expression in Deutero-Isaiah, that is the second part of the book of Isaiah, to a looser idea that God, Yah, is the primary but not only supernatural being. Scholars refer to this latter belief as henotheism, worshiping one God but accepting that others exist. Even with possession of the Torah, Hananya not only might have been a henotheist, but also have claimed justification for his belief from the Torah itself. We cannot know if henotheism was a contested position among Jews in the community in which Hananya lived. We do have a pretty good idea that it was the accepted understanding of the Jews of Elephantine. These Jews, as I mentioned earlier, were devoted to Yah, the God of Israel. But this does not mean that they couldn't hedge their bets. One would expect that the oaths recorded in legal documents of the community should be made by the life of Yahoo or Yah the God. And indeed, several say exactly that. But these very same Jews also make oaths by the life of other beings, such as Sati, the goddess, or by uh, not Yahoo or Haram Betel. According to a collection list, Jews gave monetary donations not only to Yahoo, the God of Israel, but also to Hashem Betel and Anat Betel, Aramean deities. Worship of the God of Israel was not incompatible with some kind of devotion to other deities as well. Let me return now to a suggestion I made a little while ago, that the Jews in Elephantine did know about the Passover and may have had their own different way of observing it. If they did not abstain from leavened products, what did they do? Well, the answer is rather obvious. They sacrificed. The second papyrus, of which two versions survive, testifies to the existence in Elephantine 
of a temple of Yahoo the God, the same Lord of Heaven worshipped by the Jews. According to this letter, which we can precisely date from to November 25th, 407 BCE, three and a half years earlier, that is around 410 BCE, which is nine years after the Passover letter was sent, this temple of Yahoo was destroyed. The culprits were the Egyptian priests of the god Knub, who plotted with the Egyptian military supervisor of Elephantine when the Persian functionary was absent. The Jews were crestfallen. Our letter was sent from Jenaniah, presumably the same man to whom the Passover letter was sent, and the priests, as the letter says, to a certain Bagoe, the governor of Judah. In it, Jedaniah claims that their ancestors built this temple prior to the conquest of the Persian emperor Cambyses into Egypt in 525 BCE, and that although Cambyses destroyed all of the other temples of the gods of Egypt, he protected this temple of the Jews. So at the time of its destruction, the temple of Yahu had been standing for at least a century. The temple of Yahu was no shack. Although modern archaeologists have yet to firmly identify its ruins, Jedaniah graphically describes its destruction. It had stone pillars and five stone gateways, standing doors with bronze hinges, and a cedarwood roof. It was appointed with gold and silver basins used for the sacrificial service. Presumably, the priests mentioned in the salutation of the letter would have performed the service. The attackers raised the building but took the basins for their own use. While the wording of the letter is delicate, it implies that this act of wanton sacrilege provoked a bloody riot. It is unclear whether the Jews rose up and killed the attackers, or whether the Persian authorities restored order and executed the perpetrators, but the Jews were avenged. It is likely that the destruction of the Temple of the Jews culminated a longer history of tensions between Jews and Egyptians on this little island. The Egyptians would have seen the Jews as collaborators with their Persian overlords and undoubtedly took offense at the monument to a foreign god in their midst and the Persian support for the god of the Jews over the native Egyptian gods. The absence of the Persian authority took the lid off the kettle as it were and let this long simmering religious and political cauldron boil over. I'm sorry about that. Maybe I got a little carried away with the metaphor, but you get the point. So now the Jews were safe again and their enemies were punished, but they still did not have their temple back. This was apparently no small matter. Without a temple, they could not perform the sacrifices that their God demanded of them. According to Jedaniah's letter, from the time of the destruction of their temple, the Jews of Elephantine went into mourning. For the last three and a half years, they have, as he puts it, been wearing sackcloth and fasting. Our wives are made as widows. We do not anoint ourselves with oil and do not drink wine. These classic acts of mourning were meant to propitiate their God, to cause the Lord of heaven to take pity on them, and give them the opportunity and resources that they needed to rebuild the temple. They did not, though, rely only on God's mercy. Quite remarkably, 
very soon after the temple at Elephantine was destroyed, as Jedaniah recounts, and here I quote, We sent a letter to our Lord and to Jehohanan, the high priest, and his colleagues, the priests who were in Jerusalem, and to Astanis, the brother of Anani, and the nobles of the Jews. They did not send us a single letter. In other words, the Jews of Elephantine appealed to the, to the Jerusalem priests, nobles, and authorities for help in reconstructing their own temple. Nobody bothered to reply to them. This passage is remarkable because it demonstrates complete ignorance of the very clear directives through much of the Torah to perform sacrifices to the God of Israel only in the place that I will choose, that is, Jerusalem. Jedaniah fully expects that the Jerusalem priests will help him rebuild what they would have seen as an abomination. Indeed, their lack of response was not a case of a letter lost in the Persian post. It was intentional. The Jerusalem priests had no interest in helping them rebuild their temple. The conclusion is inescapable. These Jews of Elephantine, who were integrated into the Persian Empire and who had open lines of communication even with the Jews of Jerusalem, now 44 years after Ezra returned to Jerusalem, and only very shortly after Nehemiah's career ended, did not know the Torah as it survives today. This is the only really plausible explanation as to how Jedaniah and his colleagues could have expected a positive response from Jerusalem. Even Deuteronomy, which probably had existed in more or less its present form since the 7th century BCE, and which contains some of the harshest criticisms of worship outside of the temple, was unknown to them. These texts were, though, known in Jerusalem, which explains again the Passover letter. The Jerusalem priests, perhaps, were instructing their Elephantine compatriots in matters that they had not known before. Perhaps, though, the Jerusalem priests were still uncertain about their own authority, or even the authority of the Torah. Thus, instead of telling the Elephantine Jews that they must not rebuild the temple, they ignored the issue and hoped that it might go away on its own. Obviously, though, it didn't. If the Jerusalem priests had hoped to send a subtle message to Jedaniah, he apparently didn't get it. So some three years later, he wrote again, and this time, for good measure, sent a copy, he tells us, to Deliah and Shelemiah, sons of Sanballat, governor of Samaria. If the Jerusalem nobles wouldn't help him, maybe the sons of Nehemiah's old nemesis would. Jedaniah's request to Bagoe, the governor of Judah, is specific. And I quote, Now your servants, Jedaniah and his colleagues and the Jews, all of them citizens of Elephantine, say thus, If it please our Lord, take thought of that temple to rebuild it, since they do not let us rebuild it. Regard your obligees and your friends who are here in Egypt. Let a letter be sent from you to them about the temple of Yahu the God to rebuild it in Elephantine, the fortress, just as it was formerly built. And they will offer the meal offering and the incense and the holocaust on the altar of Yahu the God in your name. And we shall pray for you at all times, we and our wives and our children and the Jews, all of them who are here. If they do thus until that temple be rebuilt, 
You will have a merit before Yahoo, the God of heaven, more than a person who offers him holocaust and sacrifices, whose worth is as the worth of silver. Jedaniah does not ask for much, really nothing more than a letter of recommendation. He feels that if Bagui writes to the current Persian authorities in Elephantine, he might be allowed to rebuild the temple and reinstate the incense, meal, and animal sacrifices. The Persian reluctance to allow him to do this, although not explicit, is understandable. The temple was a sore point with the Egyptians, and the Persians did not want a repeat performance. Things may have been tense, but they appeared to have been calm over the last several years, and Persians would not have wanted to start another riot. We possess only the copy of the letter that we assume was actually sent to Jerusalem. If there was a reply, it did not survive. Quite possibly, though, this time, too, there was no reply. The Jerusalem authorities continued to have no reason to support the rebuilding of the Temple of Yahu in Elephantine the Fortress, and we possess no evidence in the rest of the archive from Elephantine that the temple ever was rebuilt. The scattered, partial, and ambiguous evidence provided by the Book of Esther and the papyri from Elephantine suggests that in the 5th and early 4th centuries BCE, the authority of Jerusalem and its Torah was hardly secure. How many other Jewish communities scattered through the Persian Empire knew about and in some way ascribed authority to the Torah? How many maintained temples at which they offered sacrifices to Yahuwah the God, the Lord of Heaven? There is much that we still don't know and our knowledge of Jewish life in the Persian Empire in the 4th century BCE is especially thin. Soon, though, the Near East would undergo a cataclysmic shift. In 333 BCE, Alexander the Great defeated the Persians, and very soon would have under his control a vast empire stretching from Egypt to India. With the change in political control, would come also a profound cultural shift in which Greek ideas, practices, and institutions were readily, if sometimes warily, taken up. And so it is to this new political and cultural world, that of Hellenism, that we will turn in the next episode. You have been listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. The original score is by Neil Ginsberg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Technical assistance was provided by the Language Resource Center and the Instructional Technology Group, both at Brown University. More information can be found at msatlow.blogspot.com or at mlsatlow.com on the public education page. I welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.